Pacifica Radio, this is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, can Joe Biden recruit Bernie's young voters? Jeet here of The Nation magazine has been worrying about that. And we also have 15 minutes without Trump today. The story of an immigrant sweatshop worker who became one of the most charismatic radical leaders of the early 20th century. Rose Pastor Stokes has been forgotten, but now a new book tells her amazing story. It's called Rebel Cinderella. We'll speak with the author, Adam Hochschild. But first, last night Trump gave a TV address from the Oval Office and assured the nation that he was on top of the coronavirus situation. Trump Watch starts right now. We open today with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, Trump has always said the stock market shows how he's doing. What is it telling him today? Uh, it's telling him he might uh, consider seeking another line of work. <laughs> um, uh, it, it fell uh, 10% today, which was the biggest fall since the one-day uh, fall of 1987, which was kind of a fluke. This is not a fluke. This follows already on a decline of uh, more than 20% from the market's high. Uh, so all in all, the market has declined by about 30% in the last uh, week and a half or two weeks, uh, which I should say, not in Trump's defense, but I should say is about the level of decline in uh, European markets as well. Uh, the 10% today, how much of that can we attribute to the Oval Office speech that Trump delivered last night? Uh, well, I can't quantify it, but a bunch. Um, the, the speech didn't really deal with uh, the, the major issue of uh, there not being uh, sufficiently available testing. Uh, we haven't uh, implemented policies uh, to enable people to do that. It kind of, <coughs> excuse me. It kind of had the usual Trump xenophobic tilt. It sort of excluded uh, travel to and from Europe, but it wasn't clear about uh, uh, the, the transmission of goods. Uh, it confused a lot of people. His own delivery seemed uh, forced and uh, uh, uncomfortable, as if he himself were coming down with something. Uh, it, it, I think it was generally viewed as a bomb, and, and the markets uh, more or less uh, said that emphatically this morning when, when they dropped, I think, uh, 7% in, uh, in just the first few minutes. Well, Trump's idea of a government response to the coronavirus is a tax cut, in this case a payroll tax cut. Uh, even the Republicans in Congress are not uh, enthusiastic about that. What's the problem with a payroll tax cut? Well, it, it's uh, it, nominally, uh, it's the payroll tax which funds Social Security and Medicare. And since Republican voters are disproportionately elderly, um, that is a political vulnerability for them and actually for the Democrats, too, if they do it. Um, in the House... Nancy Pelosi's Democrats have put together a pretty comprehensive and progressive package for what uh, 
what needs to be done, and, and they're negotiating with the Trump administration to uh, figure out what's acceptable. I think one of the stumbling blocks, is, one of the stumbling points, is that the Trump administration doesn't want the federal government to pay for uh, t- testing for people who have no medical insurance, I presume, because if you have no medical insurance, when you get the coronavirus, it's somehow or other not dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, so, uh, just as his exclusion of Britain from the European nations, we can't uh, go back and forth uh, to and from, uh, is, is because uh, when the virus uh, speaks in English, it is, it is less dangerous, and particularly when there's a Tory government. Uh, uh, overseeing the virus in uh, in, in the UK. <laughs> well, that's very very good to hear about. So yeah. the the House Democrats bill, as I understand it, includes, as you said, the free coronavirus testing that the Republicans are against. It includes uh, uh, paid sick leave for uh, workers who have to stay home, and it includes food uh, assistance and other. Uh, measures to help uh, uh, low-wage workers and poor people who don't have enough money to uh, pay their bills even for a week. Uh, this uh, this seems like a pretty good package and the sort of thing we need, and indeed the sort of thing that Joe Biden talked about in his speech about the coronavirus today. Yeah, I think I, I think there's pretty much a, a consensus on the Democratic side as to what is to be done. On the Republican side, uh, Mitch McConnell was, until a few hours ago, determined just to send the Senate home for a recess for a week, but finally realized, gosh, maybe there was something uh, we should do, so they're staying around. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Democratic proposal is, uh, is I think, uh, pretty much what is needed, and it's pretty much what uh, uh, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders uh, both articulated today, though Bernie's went somewhat further, not surprisingly. You know, Biden's speech, I, I have to say, was just kind of a routine Washington official policy reassurance kind of speech. But uh, compared to Trump, it was uh, uh, night and day. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, Biden, uh, Biden has a kind of, I think, subliminally calming effect, if not altogether soporific. Uh, uh, You know, I mean, uh, it occurred to me a few days ago that, at least compared to Trump, he's sort of the uh, official benevolent national grandpa is kind of his his style, Uh, Well, particularly when he's not excited and shouting. Um, uh, You know, and and while there's nothing exceptional about that, it it is... uh, a step up, certainly, and and more reassuring, certainly, than what uh, what Trump conveys. Well, the one thing they had in common was uh, Biden said, you know, this has to be above politics, and we have to stick together. And Trump said pretty much the same thing. Reading the teleprompter last night in the Oval Office, let me quote the president: "Quote: We are all in this together." We must put politics aside, stop the partisanship, and unify together as one nation and one family. Close quote. Donald Trump. How long did that last? Not very. Uh, I mean, you know, this is also a guy who's called Governor Inslee of the Washington State a snake, uh, who screamed that he didn't want to negotiate anything with Nancy Pelosi. Uh, you know, this is you know, you know what this reminds me of. 
Hmm. There, there was a, a bunch of movies that have come out about sort of the period, you know, and not recently, but decades ago, about the end of the Civil War, and it showed essentially the North and, northern and southern soldiers uniting uh, to fight Indian tribes. You know, uh, yes. that, that, was, <laughs> that was the unifying common uh, theme here. Uh, it, it was a rather ridiculous genre of movies, and it's a rather ridiculous analysis uh, for Donald Trump to be advancing, of, of all people, uh, at this point, since we've had uh, the most deliberately divisive president uh, in, the nation's, uh, in the nation's history with his administration. And for those who follow Trump's tweets, I know the slogan of this show is, uh, we follow what Trump, we talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. But I have to note what he has been tweeting today. He's The first thing he did this morning at 6 a.m. was attack Chuck Schumer, and the second thing was attack Nancy Pelosi. Uh, this is sort of the opposite of stopping the partisanship and unifying together as one nation and one family. And it's he can't help himself, I don't think. No, you can't. You can't keep a good Trump down. This is uh, this, this is as reflexive uh, an, an impulse in, in him as when you know your knee is hit with a hammer. Uh, it, it, this is this is who he is. Uh, and you know, I mean, he one of the one of the aspects of, of his approach to the whole thing is to find uh, you know people other than himself to blame. Yeah. So we blame the Chinese. We blame the Europeans. Uh, you know, I, 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 or Nancy Pelosi, and and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Jay Inslee in Washington and yeah. and everyone else, and you know, and and you know, his view, uh, I suspect, is this is happening to him. It's all a big plot to you know bring down his uh, his polling. Well, there was that fascinating moment last week when he visited the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, and they explained to him how the coronavirus testing works. And he said, the testing is perfect, and the letter was perfect, referring to the letter with the transcript of his call to Ukraine. Right, right. Uh, everything gets filtered. How, how how is it you know how, how does it relate to me and how does it uh, reflect my sterling record and of course the beginning of his talk last night on television was all about how they were doing a great job and uh, uh, you know uh, citing uh, uh, events real or imagined to confirm this uh, you know I mean the nation didn't need to hear a self-evaluation. Uh, at that point, uh, much less a fictitious one. It, it wanted to know what uh, the government was going to do, but first he had to praise himself. If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Harold Meyerson of the American Prospect. I want to go back just for one minute to Trump's solution to everything, which is the tax cut, in this case the payroll tax cut. As I understand it, one of the problems from our point of view with the payroll tax cut is that when the when is it that people get the benefits and the money from the payroll tax cut? Is this really going to give them enough money to deal with losing their jobs? Absolutely not. And that's one reason why the Democratic bill uh, in, in the House actually calls for, you know, for people thrown out of, uh, out of work because of the illness, because they're a caregiver for someone with the illness, or because their workplace is closed down, uh, income supplements of up to $4,000 a month, which is, you know, a lot more than you would get if your payroll uh, uh, tax cut were uh, 
uh, reduced. Uh, so, uh, no, I mean, that, you know, keep in mind, you know, that in, in a certain sense, uh, Trump is following Republican Holy Writ here. Uh, uh, you know, uh, if you recall uh, George W. Bush, uh, when we, uh, when he sent us to war in Iraq, said, well, the way to deal with this is to uh, cut taxes. Now, historically, when we go to a war, you raise taxes to fund the war. But, you know, we've reached the point where tax cuts have, we've reached a point decades ago where tax cuts are really the only Republican public policy. Uh, it's just that Trump picked one that even his fellow Republicans are dubious about. <laughs> George W. Bush has been recalled uh, today in another context. His famous quote, good job, Brownie. After the yeah. Katrina response, Trump's speech today is says not since "Good job, Brownie" has a presidential speech gone down so poorly. I wonder if you agree with that. Well, actually, this is worse because this would have been, you know, the equivalent would have been if Bush had said "Good job, Bush." Uh, <laughs> Trump didn't say "Good job," uh, you know, Mike Pence. He said "Good job." Uh, good job, me, for the first uh, three, four minutes of his speech. So uh, it's it's worse, but the reaction is about the same. Like, what planet are you on? Uh, are you in touch with reality? Well, uh, let, let me shift gears here um, and and switch to politics. Uh, of course, we're all wondering how the coronavirus is going to affect. Uh, the rest of the primary season and indeed the presidential campaign. In the fall, um, there have been a number of calls for Congress to quickly pass a uh, nationwide mail ballot in case people are too sick to vote on November 3rd. That seems like a good idea. Yeah, I think that's a no-brainer. And do you think the Republicans in the Senate are going to agree to fund that? Uh, probably not. That sounds like, you know, Mitch McConnell. Well, you know, there's two, there's two ways to look at this. I mean, Republicans... Uh, are, are wary about doing anything that would make elections more fair. On the other hand, since the Republican base is disproportionately elderly, yes, uh, you know, uh, it it might uh, a mail ballot might look okay to them. So uh, the jury is out on that one. As far as I know, that has not yet been talked about in Congress. It's just kind of a, a pundit thing. Yeah, but I mean, it's also common sense. Uh, that, that, of course, is no guarantee of it going anywhere in Congress or actually even among pundits, but uh, it, it does make a lot of sense. Now, looking beyond November, the Prospect Today published a fascinating piece uh, about the a putting together, for the first time I've seen anywhere, a do-not-appoint list for Joe Biden's potential cabinet Assuming that Biden is the nominee and that Biden wins on November 4th, uh, we are very concerned about uh, his apparent reliance on Wall Street figures of yesteryear. Uh, tell us about uh, what the prospect's thinking is on this right now. Well, this was a piece by Bob Kuttner, who's probably the premier economic writer of the social democratic left. And Bob, you know, has written for years about the dominance of Wall Street uh, in shaping economic policy, uh, actually in some ways all the way back to the Carter administration, but particularly with the Clinton, beginning with the Clinton administration and Robert Rubin call, coming from Goldman Sachs. And then all of Rubin, the little Robert Rubens and the Rubin protégés who filled out the rest of uh, economic policy positions and 
deregulated derivatives and all of that stuff and, and repeal Glass-Steagall during the Clinton uh, administration, and who also populated the Obama administration with figures like uh, Timothy Geithner and, and, again, Larry Summers. Uh, you know, I mean, at a point in which we, we bailed out the banks, but 9 million American families lost their homes, which I think could be reasonably considered a failure of major uh, proportions in economic policy. So Bob came up with a list, beginning with Larry Summers, but sort of going down the line, Steve Ratner and others, of, of people of this uh, ilk uh, who uh, are sort of, in the last two administrations, were kind of the permanent economic government, and saying, um, you know, the, the, the Sanders-Warren wing of the party uh, needs to be vigilant and uh, discourage Joe Biden, uh, from relying on these people as his, uh, if he's president, as his previous Democratic, two Democratic president, uh, presidential predecessors did. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about what might stop Biden from appointing the <clears throat> Wall Street regulars. Uh, there, of course, are the people already in Congress, Elizabeth Warren, Sherrod Brown, uh, but you wrote today about uh, pressure from outside of Congress. Well, you know, um, when Obama became president, he had a movement of his own, which he disbanded. If Biden were to become president, he, he's not going to have a movement of his own. He doesn't even have a campaign of his own. <laughs> Good he, point. He just has momentum. Um, but uh, there is a movement out there. All these groups uh, from uh, Center for Popular Democracy uh, to, to DSA to People's Action to the Working Families Party and to Indivisible and to a number of the, the leading unions, um, which uh, constitute a broad left in the Democratic Party and uh, would have significant uh, influence both in protest and in pushing and in suggestions that would, uh, you know, and, and that's where Biden is weak going into November, particularly with, with younger voters uh, with whom he bombs. Uh, and by younger, I don't just mean under... 30. I mean, under 50. He yeah. very seldom wins, if you aggregate all the voters under 50, he, he barely, you know, he, he usually doesn't win them. Uh, so uh, uh, he, he needs to, and I think if he has any political sense at all, and he does, he knows he needs to uh, do something uh, uh, beyond just exhibiting empathy uh, and feeling pain uh, <laughs> uh, for, for those parts of the party. Um, and, and that has policy implications, like uh, you want to do an economic stimulus, how about just canceling student debt? Uh, and mm. it has personnel implications, too. So um, I, think, I think pressure will be brought, and I think if there's a Biden administration, like all Democratic presidential administrations, it will be a contested terrain uh, between left and center. And, uh, you know, the party has moved somewhat left uh, over the years uh, just because the economy has become so wretchedly inegalitarian. Uh, and there will be, you know, force and momentum on the part of those who really want to address that. So we shall see where that goes. And on the other side, let us not forget Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg <clears throat> undoubtedly has his own views about who should be in Biden's cabinet. He does, and he has a hell of a lot of money he's going to spend on Biden's behalf. So 
that will be a factor, too. So, you know, I think the best that can be hoped for is some of Michael Bloomberg's people and ideas and some of the left's people and ideas. And what that balance is uh, depends a lot on the strength of what I would call the post-Bernie left. Uh, uh, it's got to uh, remain active. It's got to cohere. And it's got to engage on, uh, on, on real policy questions. One more thing. Uh... Just ahead of our show, we heard the news, which included a report that the <clears throat> economic forecast of the Anderson School of Management at UCLA is that there will be a serious economic downturn resulting from the coronavirus, but economic recovery should set in in California by 2022. I wonder if you have any comment on that prediction. Well, maybe we can all sleep through 2021. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, we don't. We we want to be there for January 20th, 2021. Yeah, yeah, uh, we do. We do. <laughs> I think. Uh, I I think the key issue uh, is will this recovery be more egalitarian than the one that followed the panic of uh, of 2008? Because that recovery uh, only increased the levels of uh, economic inequality in this country, and uh, we can't let that happen again. Will this recovery be more egalitarian than, let's call it, the Obama recovery following 2008? Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. This was great today. Great to be here, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Bernie told Joe Biden the questions he will raise in Sunday's debate. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, 15 minutes without Trump, Adam Hochschild talks about the rebel Cinderella of early 20th century America. But first, we turn to Jeet here. He's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. Jeet, welcome back. Good to be here. Well, Bernie, we all agree, seems to have won the battle of ideas uh, inside the Democratic Party, but Biden seems to have won the nomination. What's it going to take to get Biden to endorse the issues that a majority of Democrats support? Well, that's the great uh, question right now. I think, um, I mean, the big worry is that Biden will think that now that he has a nom once he gets a nomination, he can play it safe. Uh, that um, everybody who hates Trump will vote for him anyways, and then like Hillary Clinton in 2016, he can try to expand the coalition by bringing in some moderate Republicans, uh, and uh, he can sort of hug the center. Um, and I think that the uh, problem with that is that it didn't work out very well for Hillary Clinton. Uh, by by moving towards the center, she uh, demobilized um, many people who had been the sort of democratic part of the democratic base, especially young people. 
Um, so I think that uh, it's sort of imperative to get uh, Joe Biden to kind of understand uh, that, uh, you know, like the way to win the White House uh, is uh, through the um, uh, uh, rebuilding that Obama coalition. And that, in- that includes listening to young people. And in the tease for, for this segment, we said that Bernie has already told Joe Biden what the questions are going to be in their debate on Sunday night. Uh, do you have any predictions of how Joe will respond? Well, I mean, that's a good question, because we've never really seen a one-on-one between Joe and another candidate. It's always been a very crowded stage. Um, and Joe Biden, I mean, I have to say, he has many sort of merits, but he hasn't really been very good at responding to uh, even very mild criticism and uh, requests. I mean, one sees it in the way he interacts with voters, like there are people coming up to him and asking him, you know, what's he going to do on climate and on immigration? And he basically, you know, tells them, go vote for Trump or, you know, <laughs> yes. he has a kind of gr- grumpy old man. Uh, so I think it's just kind of hard to predict. I mean, I think if he were smart, he would try to fold Bernie into the uh, uh, the coalition and try, try to uh, uh, pick up on some of these. I'm not so sure. I mean, like, I mean, I think this is a great open question. Like, I uh, the real fear is that uh, Biden is, uh, you know, going to think that he can uh, put the center and win that way, and and not have a lot of obligations towards Democratic voters. You know, all the news today is about the coronavirus. Maybe you've noticed. Uh, seems like the yes. seems like the coronavirus suggests we need Medicare for all, or at least something like it. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. No, I think that's what the point that Bernie is going to make, uh, and uh, I think it's a really powerful and resonant one. Um, and I mean, honestly, I think the uh, o- only way that it'll have force is. Um, if people inside the party uh, elite who have really, you know, led this rally towards Biden and have convinced voters that Biden is the most electable, if they realize that, you know, there's a huge chunk of voters, um, A, that uh, didn't vote for Sanders and, and, and uh, but agree with him on Medicare for all, but also there's a huge chunk that are like, you know, uh, didn't vote for Biden at all, and especially among young people, and not so young people. I mean, if you actually look at most states, I mean, there's no state in which Biden won you know, a majority of people under 30. Uh, and there's most states, he hasn't even won people under 50. Uh, so like in Michigan, you know. Uh, now, it happens that people over 50 vote in larger numbers, uh, but that doesn't really help you in the general, where the people over 50 who are voting in larger numbers are mostly Republicans. Well, let's talk for a minute about the politics of the coronavirus right now. The House has what seems like a pretty good coronavirus bill. It's the same sort of thing that Biden advocated in his speech earlier today, expand unemployment insurance, uh, uh, provide for sick pay, uh, provide for nutrition assistance to to poor people, um, uh Mitch McConnell called this bill an ideological wish list, said he wasn't going to support it, and his first move was to say they were going to uh, go on recess in the Senate. Uh, there was a reaction to that, so maybe he's he's backtracking. What's what's your sense of this? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I mean, this really shows that the whole problem all along hasn't just been Trump, right? Yes, yes, excellent point. <laughs> so it's, it's McConnell plus Trump. And it's really it's a great illustration of why the Democrats need to win the Senate. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, I think the Democrats really have to play hardball 
uh, because, you know, the people who are, you know, could really lose out are the Republicans in the sense that they're going to need Democratic votes for the um, uh, bailout that's going to be coming. Uh, and, you know, I mean, the Fed has injected money into the system, which they can do, but they're going to need, like, even bigger sort of uh, fiscal bailouts, and they're going to need those Democratic votes. And I really hope that, and I, I think they will. I think Pelosi and Schumer are going to kind of play hardball with this and try to, you know, get as much as they can. Uh, uh, because, I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, Trump is, you know, beholden to his own fantasies and his desire, you know, to be seen as uh, doing well uh, with the virus. Uh, but McConnell is beholden, I think, to Wall Street. And I think that the uh, um, uh, a lot of some of the business class is going to be pretty upset if they see that uh, there's gridlock on this. Uh, I think it's an excellent point that the problem is not just Trump. This is what the Republican Party has been saying ever since Reagan. Government is the problem. Well, now is a time when we see that government actually, we need government. We need government to help people. Government is a part of the solution. Government is not the problem. So this is this is a uh, a big blow to not just Trump, but to, you know, 40 years of Republican ideology. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think you actually kind of see with some of the more moderate Republicans who are like kind of worried about their seats, um, uh, you know, um, especially Collins, uh, that uh, they're kind of like, you know, willing to shift. And I think if you could actually see a Republican revolt against Mitch McConnell. Like, I think that uh, if, if uh, um, enough people in the Senate go against them, I think this could be real problems for them as well. So I, I feel like... Um, I think that the politics of all this really favor the Democrats, and I think that they can really push their advantage. And I, I think that they really have to be, you know, have the narrative that, uh, uh, which is true, that like McConnell is obstructing this, and he's obstructing, like, you know, like I mean, Wall Street just had the biggest um, point drop in its history. Uh, but if you even if you look at it percentage terms, which is perhaps more accurate, it's the biggest point drop since 1987. And previous to that, the biggest percentage drop was uh, 1929. So, I mean, we're dealing with uh, uh, big numbers here. And let's note that today's historic drop came, uh, well, let's say it began the minute the market opened after Trump's speech. Do you think there was a relation there? Yeah, I think that Trump's speech uh, really panicked a lot of people because, uh, the, I mean, the what he was offering made no sense. Like, why would you have this travel ban from Europe when you already have the uh, pandemic is in the United States, right? Like, it's not actually going to do anything. Uh, well, I but, thought that, I thought this was a foreign virus. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, and, uh, so, yeah, I mean, you, you can build a wall against the virus. Mm. Some of the Trump supporters have said, and like, and, but, but even beyond that, I mean, Trump got, he had a prepared speech, which he got the, you know, many of the main details wrong in a way that really panicked people of like, saying that, you know, like cargo from Europe was going to be banned. And people had the impression from what he said that, like, the um, American citizens weren't going to be able to come back. And so that, that created a huge panic, uh, people flying, you know, rushing to the airports in Europe. Uh, so I, th I, th I think that there's a very vivid display of, you know, um, Trump's incompetence. Uh, and I think that that has shaken the markets, and I quite rightly. I mean, like, it, I mean, it has been terrifying all along that the, this guy has uh, been in power, and I think anyone who had eyes to see could have predicted that if he's in charge of a crisis, 
uh, it would end badly. Uh, and he, he has, I mean, and the previous similar, you know, crisis was the hurricanes in, um, Puerto Rico and he bought that, but, you know, because it's Puerto Rico and those are poor brown people, it yeah. doesn't quite resonate. But I mean, like now everybody can see it's their stock portfolio. <laughs> If you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Jeet here. He's the nation's national affairs correspondent. <clears throat> Let's talk about what the rest of the Democratic primary campaign is going to look like under the shadow of the coronavirus and what the presidential campaign is going to look like. I mean, so much of political campaigning for hundreds, a hundred years in America has been rallies, public speeches. I mean, look at a year spent in Iowa in living room, candidates in living rooms talking, pitching their life stories to ordinary folks. Uh, and people like you and I have been saying, you know, this is what real politics is. It's the face-to-face, door-to-door work. Uh, you know, TV is is uh, misleading and a waste of time. There isn't going to be any more big rallies. There isn't going to be any more face-to-face campaigning. So what's that going to do to American politics? Well, that's an uh, excellent question. I mean, I think, uh, well, actually, just to bring up the news up today, both the Biden and Sanders campaign have told their staffers to work from home and have uh, basically uh, given up the sort of door-to-door um, uh, canvassing, which uh, especially for the Sanders campaign was the, you know, the thing that really got them so far. Yeah, let me just interrupt. Let me just interrupt here to say that I, I'm not aware that the Trump campaign had a campaign organization to work from home. Uh, oh, you mean the Biden? The Biden. Pardon me. Uh, Sanders campaign has a million volunteers who work all over the place. I'm not aware that the Biden campaign had any door-to-door work. Well, this is, this is, this is actually like this, this is the point I was just about to make, which is I actually think, you know, in a lot of ways, this is the ideal campaign for Joe Biden. Yes. I mean, like, you know, he hasn't, he's actually done the worst where voters have actually had a chance to see him face-to-face mm. Uh, mm. in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. Uh, he's done the best where there's uh, um, uh, been more distant relationships, you know, on the Super Tuesday and subsequently, where people mainly see him from television and from uh their memories of the Obama era. Yeah. So I mean, I and then in fact, and the you know for whatever reason, the Biden campaign has been keeping him under wraps, where he has very short speeches um, and not a lot of contact uh, with reporters. So I mean, this is almost you know people. The movie was called Weekend with Bernie, but it's actually you know Weekend with Biden, <laughs> and uh, this is like the the coronavirus is an almost ideal situation for a Weekend with Biden uh, campaign. On the other hand, the uh, once we get to the uh, the fall campaign, um, Trump lives off of those giant rallies where he gets to you know rant and rail against his enemies, real and imagined, and gets to hear the cheering of. 15, 20,000 people. It's going to be a big blow, not just to the politics of the Republican campaign, but to Trump personally, that he's going to be sitting up there in the in the White House bedroom tweeting. That's all he's going to have left. He's not going to have the big crowds of thousands of people cheering for him. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think that's right. I mean, actually, he hasn't wanted to cancel. And as of right now, they still have like a, a March rally coming up. Um, so, uh, w- w- which uh, they were boasting about even today, how many people are going to come out? I mean, I don't know if it'll happen. Uh, the, um, I mean, I mean, I think the way the virus is expected to go is like that. The next two months are going to be very hard, and then when summer hits, yeah, because of the warmer temperatures, 
it'll die down, and then there's the you know danger that it'll come back in the fall. Uh, so I think that maybe there could be like some summer rallies and um, and what have you, but I I don't know. I mean, I think that's exactly right. Like I think Trump's rapport with that audience, with the the people in the rallies that he riles up, is a big part of his politics uh, and really feeds him. Um, and I don't know what's gonna. I, I mean, I think that that is a um, are very harmful to him. Um, yeah, I, 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 uh, so, I mean, we will see a kind of virtual campaign, I think, uh, unless Trump, you know, like if the, if the virus kind of dies down over the summer, Trump might want to risk it all and, you know, like just uh, 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 get people out uh, again in the summer and the fall. We'll see. Uh, we've heard a couple of uh, proposals just in the last day or two uh, that, we need, just in case there's the virus remains uh, uh, powerful and and intimidating in on election day, November third, we need Congress to fund a universal vote by mail now. What do you think of that proposal? I think that it's a really good proposal. I mean, like I think you know, yeah, one one of the nightmare scenarios is if you know the virus returns in the fall. And it's very, you know, virile as, as viruses can be. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, yeah, you can have canceled elections or like huge undervoting. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think like every sort of precaution has to be taken. I don't think Republicans are going to do that, right? Like, I think that the, uh, 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 well, I mean, I think they have to be pressed on that. I think that this is something that should happen anyways. It just will, you know, as a, a, a precaution, but also makes it easier for more people to vote. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, on the one hand, the Republicans don't want to make it easier for people to vote. On the other hand, it's old people who are the base of the Republican Party right now, and old people are the ones most likely to get the virus and need to vote by mail. So I think there's hope that the Republicans might go for this. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, uh, and the old people are the ones that who most often do use uh, mail-in ballots. So, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, th- I, think, it, I think it's possible... Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, like, we're really in uncharted waters. Um, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but in England, there, um, there's a vote coming up, which I think that they're probably going to cancel. So I think, you know, the idea of, that, of an election being delayed because of uh, the virus is not a fanciful thing at all. I think it could happen. The idea of the election being delayed because of a virus is not fanciful. It could happen. Jeet here. Read him at thenation.com. Jeet, thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you so much. It was great to talk. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, 15 minutes without Trump. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at four tonight on KPFK, rising up with Sonali. Now it's time to talk about an immigrant sweatshop worker who became one of the most charismatic radical leaders of the early 20th century. She's been forgotten, but now a new book tells her story. The book is Rebel Cinderella, 
and the author is Adam Hochschild. Adam is a best-selling author of 10 books. My favorites are To End All Wars. It's about the anti-war movement of World War I. And Bury the Chains. It's about the beginnings of the abolition of slavery. Adam has won many awards. He's a co-founder of Mother Jones Magazine. His articles have appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, The Atlantic, and The Nation. Last time we talked here was a couple of months ago on the 100th anniversary of the Palmer Raids, the deportations of immigrant radicals, which somehow seems relevant in our own time. Adam, welcome back. Thank you, John. It's always good to talk with you. Well, I'm a historian of the American left, but I must confess I never heard of Rose Pastor Stokes until your book came along, but apparently I'm not the only one. That's for sure. She's really a, a largely unknown figure today. The surprising thing to me as I delved into her life story was that at the time that uh, she was alive and politically active, she was extraordinarily well-known. Uh, in fact, the proprietor of a newspaper clipping service in 1921, and the newspaper clipping service was the nearest thing to a database at that time, did a count and found that she was the woman whose name was most often mentioned in American newspapers. There were five men, you know, people like Woodrow Wilson and Henry Ford, whose names were mentioned more often, but no woman was mentioned more often in the press. And if you use a database of old newspapers today, like the wonderful one that the Library of Congress has that's online and free for anybody to use, you'll see thousands of articles about her. Well, you open your book, Rebel Cinderella, with a fabulous scene, Rose Pastor Stokes at Carnegie Hall in 1916, but she's not playing the violin. Right. She is addressing a rally promoting birth control. And to speak publicly about things and to distribute medical information about birth control was illegal under the Comstock Act at that time. And she announced on the stage of Carnegie Hall, I'm going to break the law right now. And she began passing out birth control leaflets. You write about her first job in a sweatshop making cigars. How did a cigar maker get a full-time job at a newspaper? You know, a lot of young people today would like to get a job like working at a newspaper right now. That's for sure. There were more newspapers back then. Well, here in brief is her story. She came to the U.S. She, uh, as an immigrant. She was born in Tsarist Russia, fled from there with her mother at the age of three, lived in England for uh, seven or eight years, came to the U.S. in 1890 at the age of 11, and had to immediately go to work as a factory worker uh, in a series of factories that made cigars. By the end of a dozen years, she was the sole support of herself, her mother, and six younger siblings who'd been abandoned by a ne'er-do-well stepfather. But starting around 1900, she began sending anecdotes, letters, articles, sentimental poetry to a Yiddish-language newspaper in New York, the Yiddish's Tageblatt, or Jewish Daily News. Happily for me, because I don't know Yiddish, she wrote for the paper's one English language page. Mm. And in early 1903, 
the newspaper invited her to come to New York. She had been uh, living and working in Cleveland, Ohio with her family, come to New York and become a reporter for the newspaper. And that she did. Now, the interesting thing to me at this point was that she was not submitting radical, revolutionary, pro-labor articles. That's not what got her the job. What was she writing when she first started? She was writing uh, humorous anecdotes, sentimental poetry, and an advice column for women called Just Between Ourselves, Girls. And what kind of advice did she offer? Very conventional advice. No sex before marriage, hold out for the right man, worship at the synagogue uh, on Saturdays, but sit in the balcony which is in Orthodox synagogues is often where women were, were segregated and made to sit. Very conventional stuff. Didn't seem to have thought much about politics. But after she moved to New York and got married, uh, she got very deeply into the radical movement of that time. And then she got married. The, the man in your story, James Graham Phelps Stokes, I was familiar with his name, For one reason, the Phelps Dodge strike of 1917, it was at a gigantic copper mine in Bisbee, Arizona. It's an incredible story, and it tells a lot about the family that he came from. It does indeed. This was the strike where the company, the mining company, mobilized a posse of several thousand people and rounded up some 1,200 workers and took them out out of town across the state line to New Mexico to get them out of town. Very brutal crackdown. This was one source of the family's uh, fortune. Another source was New York real estate, especially luxury apartment buildings on the Upper East Side. They also owned a cluster of gold and silver mines in Nevada and a railroad that led to them. And James Graham Phelps Stokes, or Graham as he was known to his friends, was a son of this family, but he'd taken a somewhat different route in life. He went to medical school, got very horrified by encountering extreme poverty in New York City. He was in medical school at Columbia while he was working as a medical student on a horse-drawn ambulance serving the city's slums. He was shocked by what he saw, and he became part of the settlement house movement and went to live in a settlement house, as many volunteers did at that time, settlement house on the Lower East Side. And one day, Rose Pastor, as she then was, was sent to interview him. That's how they met, and they fell in love. So poor left-wing girl marries rich guy from an incredibly wealthy family. How did this marriage work? Well... It was an extraordinary match, not just because it was someone extremely poor marrying someone extremely rich, but because it was a marriage of Jew and Gentile, which was very, very unusual at that time. And the unusualness of it made it literally front-page news uh, across the country. It was, it was reported in Europe and Australia and other places as well. Front page of the New York Times, lead story in the New York Evening World, this extraordinary match. And the public followed them with great fascination. They lived in a blaze of publicity for the next 20 years because this seemed to be the Cinderella story. 
Prince Charming from his castle, uh, marries poor, virtuous Cinderella, whisks her off to the castle from her humble hearth, and so on. Except their lives didn't follow the Cinderella script. Ram Stokes, to some degree, had left the castle. Rose had no desire to live in one. They often stayed with his parents, who had uh, extraordinarily fancy homes, but it always made her uncomfortable. And they married in 1905. In 1906, they both joined the Socialist Party. And for the next dozen years or so, they were friends with all the most interesting people in American life at that time. Emma Goldman, Lincoln Steffens, John Reed, Margaret Sanger, Big Bill Haywood, Eugene Debs. Uh, all these folks were in and out of their homes. And some of, some of them left us their recollections of Rose and Graham. So Graham Stokes became a socialist. How closely did he follow her politics? She was always in the lead and he was always one step behind? Not exactly. He was in a way in the lead at the beginning because theirs started off as a fairly traditional marriage. Graham was seven years older than Rose they married on her 26th birthday. She looked up to him, was enormously impressed that here was this guy who knew a lot of the leading writers of the day, had multiple graduate degrees, seemed to know all kinds of things that uh, she didn't know and hadn't experienced in, in life. And I think it took her a decade or so to realize that she was smarter than he was. There soon began to be an imbalance that appeared because she was a tremendously popular public speaker. Uh, one of my few regrets in, in researching the book was that it was just a decade or two too early for audio or video, so I couldn't actually hear the sound of her voice, but there are countless people writing to her saying, this is the best speech I ever heard, it moved me to tears, newspaper reporters saying, you know, the audience was so riveted that they wouldn't leave the hall even when they turned the lights off, things like that. And there are signs that Graham was not happy that his wife began receiving more attention than, than he did. And then came World War I. Right. And this was the cause of really the first breach between them. Rose ended up feeling uh, that it was a terrible mistake for the United States to enter the war. And she went on the road saying this publicly giving speeches in different parts of the country. Graham Stokes was so enthusiastic for the war that he enlisted, went into uniform, was too old to be sent overseas, although he tried very hard to make that happen. But he served in uniform in the New York National Guard for several years, never got closer to combat than marching down Fifth Avenue in a parade. And then they were further divided by the Russian Revolution, which happened, you know, the, the second phase of the Revolu Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik seizure of power, which happened in the fall of 1917. Rose was all for it. Graham was against it. So this deepened the rift between them. Now, you say Rose campaigned against America's entry into World War I. A lot of their friends in the Socialist Party who did this ended up deported or in jail. For example, Eugene Debs went to prison and Emma Goldman was deported. What happened to Rose? She was arrested, sentenced to 10 years in prison under the Espionage Act uh, for speaking out against American participation in the war. 
Graham Stokes put up bail money. They appealed the case. And eventually, some three years later, it was overturned on appeal. So she didn't have to go to jail. Eugene Debs, however, was so moved by her being sentenced and being willing to go to prison for her beliefs that he began speaking out against the war much more energetically than he had done before. And actually, in the speech for which he was arrested, he said, if Rose Pastor Stokes is guilty, then so am I. And he was sent to prison for several years, and he was still in prison in November of 1920 when he received nearly a million votes for president on the socialist ticket. Well, all this happened 100 years ago. Do you see any parallels to today? Well, I think a lot of the issues that angered Rose and Graham that made them go into the socialist movement are very much still with us. Look at inequality in this country. Today, the top 1% of the population has a greater share of the income and a greater share of the wealth than was the case in 1905 when Rose and Graham got married. You know, we still have extreme poverty in parts of this country. Uh, every time I drive onto the freeway in Berkeley, I see an encampment of homeless people with their tents under the freeway underpass. So a lot of these problems are still with us. You say she was prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Whatever happened to the Espionage Act? An amended version of it is still with us. And uh, security agency whistleblower Edward Snowden and uh, a number of other whistleblowers have been prosecuted under it. One last question about your research. You say there were lots of newspaper articles about Rose marrying Graham, were you, how hard was it to do research on this topic? Well, I was very lucky, John, because in addition to all those articles, they wrote thousands of letters and kept them, literally thousands of letters. Rose kept a diary, and they wrote dueling memoirs. They got divorced very bitterly in 1925, but even kept all the letters, you know, accusing each other of various things that they wrote as they were getting divorced. And you can go look at all these in the various libraries where they've ended up. The memoirs were unpublished. Graham's was never published. Rose's was published uh, only nearly half a century after her death. So this is rich material to work from, and uh, you should urge all your listeners to save their letters, write diaries, give historians like you and me raw material to work from. The amazing story of Rose Pastor Stokes, Adam Hochschild tells it in his irresistible new book, Rebel Cinderella. Adam, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. A couple of closing thoughts for today. We've just read the news that uh, the NBA has canceled the rest of its season. March Madness has been canceled. And Major League Baseball is canceling spring training and the at least the first two weeks of the baseball season. That one really hurts. The Dodgers get Mookie bets. And what happens? There might not be a season. It's going to be the Dodgers' best year in you know our, our recent lifetime. I switched over to Fox News coming into the station today to see how they were covering all of this. And they uh, raised the question, what will happen now to sports betting? Such a big part of life in America. What is there left to bet on? 
if March Madness is canceled, if the NBA is over, if there's no baseball season. Lots of things to worry about on Fox News. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests, Harold Meyerson. He closed by asking, will the eventual recovery from the coronavirus recession be more egalitarian than the one that followed the 2008 financial collapse? And we also spoke with Jeet here uh, about the politics of the coronavirus. Thanks to our engineer, Teddy Robinson, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Stay tuned at 4 tonight on KPFK for Rising Up with Sonali. Hey, Trump watchers, remember those three little words about KPFK, no corporate underwriting. We don't take money from corporations, so they don't dictate our programming. That means we depend on you for our funding. You help keep the transmitter broadcasting our signal. And right now, we need your help. So please contribute today to help keep this show and this station on the air. Go to kpfk.org and make a contribution today. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 